Everyday peacemakers are not professional humanitarians. We are everyday people who are learning to see God and ourselves in others. We're daring to step off the road of comfort and immerse into reality. In the face of injustice, conflict, and violence, we are choosing to contend not by getting even, but by getting creative in love. Everyday peacemakers are everyday people who are embedded within a world divided by difference, and these are our stories. Welcome to Everyday Peacemaking, a global immersion podcast hosted by Haley Mitsui, John Huckins, and me, I'm Jer Swigert. And as always, we're gonna ease our way into this conversation with one of Haley's questions of the week. Do you remember when you felt happiest? The moment I was happiest. This is clear. There's nothing that even got close to it. I was in the back of a 1983 blue Buick station wagon facing backwards, locking eyes with the car behind us because I was the youngest. I was seven years old and it was my birthday party and all my buddies are in the wagon and uh, we're on the way to the ballpark. Candlestick Park, San Francisco to watch Will the Thrill with my buds. That was the best day of my life. Oh, that's good. That's good. That's really good. What do you guys got? One of my happiest moments ever was being in Athens, Greece with Jackie. We were on our way to the closing ceremonies of the 2004 games in the place where the games began, you all. I mean, how about that? And we stop over at this little tiny street cafe and we ordered cappuccinos and topped it off with a little sugar in the raw. She and I sat and we watched the world mill through the streets of Athens. And I had the knowledge that I was about to spend the evening at the closing ceremonies of the Olympics. That evokes happiness for me. Wow. Wow. Huh? Most, of, most of us refer to you as a Greek god. So, I mean, well, that all parallels you know. well. <laughs> if by most you mean zero people in the world. Well, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to make for that the, public. For the record, I'm Germanic Nordic. <laughs> Hey, Elsa, okay. how about you? Honestly, I can say on the inside, I was as happy as both of you, but nobody will understand because there's just no good way to tell this story except for I was in a really sad mood and Brad was trying to figure out how to how to um, cheer me up. And I didn't know that we had a spaghetti factory in San Diego. And he suggested that we go to spaghetti factory. Spumoni. Spumoni for dessert. Mazithra cheese and Spumoni. Like, that was whenever we had celebrations as a family growing up. We'd go to the spaghetti factory. I was weeping. Oh, wow. Like, with so much joy. And that may be, like, when I think of, like, embodied happiness, that may be the most embodied happiness I've ever Whoa. If I'm Brad, Brad, if you are listening in, that kind of cheese and that kind of ice cream. Well, and there's no doubt, tears. there's no doubt that Brad and Hales ended with a little noodle 101 Dalmatians share. Pop you know in the I mean. lactate. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Pasta and ice cream. Oh, so good. So good. Well, hey, we've got, um, we've got Samantha Ham on the episode today, you guys, and uh, we all know her. We love her and we are... So grateful uh, for who she is and how she is. This particular conversation, she takes us on quite a journey uh, in her own life uh, in the way that she viewed God and how that shapes how she is showing up in her vocation as an everyday peacemaker uh, in today's world. So, um, so let's give it a listen. Sam, welcome. 
welcome to the Everyday Peacemaking Podcast. We have been looking forward to this conversation. Why don't we begin uh, just with you identifying yourself and and locating uh, where you are in this great big world. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I am currently in Reno, Nevada, and I'm an educator, so I just rounded out my seventh year teaching. Um, I'm currently teaching in an adult education center, but most of my experience in professional training has been uh, working with English learners, um, particularly in middle schools, but now I'm in the adult education space, so... Got yeah. it. Got it. And, and I've, I've had the opportunity to have a bit of a portal into your formation as an everyday peacemaker over the last few years. And, uh, and I'm excited just to hear you reflect on that journey, especially with regard to how I'm observing and listening and watching you show up right now, uh, in this moment in time, but both in Reno, but I think in some other spaces in some social media spaces as well. And so, would you share with us a bit of that story, maybe from uh, from that space, that moment in time when you were really questioning the legitimacy of your faith, to where you're at now, uh, where from from my point of view, you are you are living fueled by your faith into this restorative revolution in some really profound ways. And so, give us give us that story. Sure. Um, a little background context between 2012 and 2015, my husband Kelly and I were in campus ministry at a university in Iowa and I was full-time teaching at that time, teaching English learners and he was doing campus ministry full-time. And, um, so for me vocationally at that time, my goal, like teaching was just kind of what paid the bills and my goal since seventh grade was I wanted to be in ministry. And after we got married and started in ministry, it felt like that dream started to come together and at the same time started to fall apart. Um, and so that became a little bit more of a nightmare. I don't have any hesitation today in describing that environment as spiritually abusive and oppressive to women. Um, and it was really painful. Um, and at the same time, I grew more passionate about education and education as um, a way to make a difference in the world. And um, at the end of my first year teaching, I had two undocumented students enroll in our tiny rural Iowa school district. And really a lot of my passion for education and advocacy grew from uh, my experiences teaching them and my relationships with them and their family. Um, but at the end of our three years in ministry in 2015, my husband was forced to resign. Um, he refused to control his wife and um, he said, if she can't stand next to me, I'll sit down next to her. Wow. Wow. So then at that point, we moved from Iowa 1,700 miles west to Reno, Nevada. And a lot of our conversations around that time, we just did a lot of processing together. And I remember one specific moment I said, this is what happened to us and how we were pushed out of ministry and um, this kind of abuse and oppression like wasn't an isolated incident. And it was the first time that the word systemic really made sense to me. Mm. Um, that like this wasn't just one gear in the machine that went wrong, 
but it was like operating exactly how the whole system has designed it to operate, Mm -hmm. Um, which gave me a little bit of a framework to understand what people were saying in the justice-seeking world. Um, And so we moved to Reno and we moved in with my mom Hmm. and I took a year off to heal, to discern, Um, even though I was finding more passion for education, teaching is hard and I wasn't sure I wanted to be a teacher anymore. But, um, that year, right after we moved, I kind of shook my proverbial fist at God and I said, if you're a bully, I don't want anything to do with you. Um, and I, it's just, it's a little bit of a weird way to relate to God, I think, talking this way, but, um... But I just remember saying, like, you have a year. You have a year to, like, prove yourself to me. And uh, at the end of that, like, if you're still a bully, I'm out. I'm gone. Like, so um, over the course of that year, I had a lot of different experiences that were very transformational for me. And one of those happened to be coming onto a learning lab with Global Immersion uh, spring of 2016 to Israel, Palestine. Mm-hmm. And initially, my interest in that stemmed from hearing Lynn Hybels talk about her experiences uh, with women doing grassroots peacemaking work in the region. And um, it was very powerful to me to hear her talk about that, something I had never, never heard spoken of before that this kind of thing even existed. And I just thought if I ever had a chance to experience something like that, I'm, I'm in. Um, so I joined the, the delegation and I remember a specific moment and Jerry, you might remember this too, but we were sitting at dinner together and I leaned over to you and I said, Jerry, this whole, this whole experience, like the eight weeks of the learning that we did beforehand and being here with everyone, like it's just made me fall in love with Jesus again. Mm-hmm. Um, so from that point, I would say, you know, a fundamental shift in my understanding and practice of my faith took place where um, I describe this now as kind of like a migration. I don't know if that's appropriate language to use in this context, but um, a migration away from from white Jesus mm-hmm. to a brown skin, nonviolent Jewish revolutionary from first mm-hmm. century Palestine. And I kind of use that term migration because it's just an ongoing thing all the time. It's never a like, there may be a moment where that shift happened, but um, yeah, it's a journey that I'll be on probably for the rest of my life. So yeah, yeah, and so that, so then I decided, you know, I'm going to teach again. I'm going to be an ESL teacher. And so that really started that vocational shift again towards um, teaching and kind of finding an advocacy voice within education and the um, migrant justice, how those things kind of come together and intersect with each other. Um, right after our trip, one of the one of the most important parts of that learning lab was meeting um, Dominique Gilliard. And 
um, he connected with me when I got back and has been a mentor to me and has connected me with other mentors. Um, and I just don't know that if I hadn't had that, that relationship and that community that was built around that, that any of this work would have been sustained. So right after that learning lab on July 10th, I walked into church four days after Philando Castile was murdered in Minneapolis. And I told Kelly, I said, um, I hope I'm really not, I hope I'm not really disappointed when I leave church today. And, and what would have disappointed you? Oh, hearing we're colorblind or just kind of all the things that white people say when this stuff happens. Okay. Or, or even, or even silence, I imagine. Right. Yes. Yeah. Silence as well. So I did walk away very disappointed and I never went back. I wrestled with that a lot because some people say that white people should stay in their communities and try to work for change. And then other people say divest. And so I did what felt like the right step for us, but sometimes I still wrestle with that. All of that has kind of changed a little bit of like how I orient myself in the world too, and how I see my place and my position. Um, I feel that the, the white savior complex is very deeply rooted in me mm -hmm. <laughs> and it will be the journey of my life to uproot whiteness and that kind of fundamentalism from me as I continue to, to grow in this. Can you speak just a little bit about the, some of that work that, that you've done though? Like the like you're seeing whiteness as a problem inside of yourself. What are you doing to begin to excavate that? Right. Well, and when I first kind of started shifting this like vocationally, I approached it kind of as an advocate. And there's a lot of adv advocacy work to be done in education and to be done like in the realm of teaching English learners, especially because we, their families are often so disempowered and often don't have a means to advocate for themselves. But I realized that um, I was approaching that a little bit from like a saviorism standpoint and not doing the inner interior work to uproot like, you know, whiteness from my own teaching practice. And um, so I had, you know, attended some advocacy events and things like that, but now I'm shifting my focus a little bit more to be more intentional about developing an anti-racist teaching practice um, and doing some work in my school around that. Can, can you talk to us a little bit about what that's looking like? I know that we've got mm -hmm. a, a number of teachers listening in and would be eager to understand how you're transforming or how you're seeing your classroom as the space of restoration yeah. and what, what does anti-racism work actually look like in that context? Yeah. Well, one thing that I'm, I was so excited that our school did this year is we held a know your rights seminar. We partnered with a local organizing community organizing group, um, and hosted a, a seminar for our migrant, um, community. And so shifting, this idea that education is just about information to education as like empowerment and transformation. Mm. And as um, Bell Hooks says, education as the, um, the practice of freedom. And so some of that also has to do with, again, we tend to, I think a way that whiteness shows up in education is even just our conceptualization of education as just information mm -hmm. and the consumption of information. 
So I've been taking a bit of a more zoomed out perspective and looking at the entire teaching practice, like my, what's my philosophy of teaching and how has mm. that been informed and infected by whiteness and how can I transform that philosophy to something that is not rooted in whiteness, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and decenters mm-hmm. whiteness from uh, from that. And so even other things like classroom management practices, like all of those things go into teaching. What are my instructional strategies? Whose voices are heard and whose voices are not heard in my classroom? Um, and more of a like collaborative space um, as opposed to me, you know, holding the information and dumping it into mm-hmm. students' brains, mm-hmm. you know? So mm-hmm. just a completely like reconceptualization of of what a teaching practice is, what education is. And, um, Hmm. Hmm. And I feel like too, like that's, that's a shift in approach from advocacy to alliance in, in terms of a teacher's framework. Like, uh, I don't know. There's something about coming. If education is not about consumption and it's about transformation, it demands that the teacher shifts his or her posture and, and strategy. And that's what I'm hearing you say that you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if, you know, that's deeply informed by a faith that sees, um, God less as less interested in controlling me and more deeply invested in our liberation. Mm. And that's what I want my classroom to look like. That's what I want our schools and our education system to look like. Spot on. And I, I, I love, I heard you say like you gave God a year to prove that God is not a bully. And what you just, what I just heard you say is turns out God is intimately invested in your and our collective liberation. It sounds like, uh, it sounds like, uh, God showed you a thing or two. Hey, yeah. God's a liberator. (laughs) Spot on Sam. Thank you so much for your story, for your life. We love how you show up as an everyday peacemaker in the context of the classroom. Uh, thanks for thanks for whether it's a migration or an odyssey. Thank you for being on it because uh, the world is a better place because of you. Thank you, and thanks for having me. Sam Ham, that was so good. Like the Whoa. the the way her story was the embodiment of a faith that moves from a controlling God to a liberative God, a liberating God is ultimately the story of restoration. Like when we talk about peacemaking, it is the journey towards restoration that we trust God is making real in our world. And for her to have a completely different orientation to God and how that informs how she shows up in her family, in her faith community, and most specifically in her classroom is the stuff. Yeah, I know. Well, I mean, when she said that line, which of course I'm going to misquote, but something about God is not interested in controlling you, but in your liberation, which Jer, I mean, you immediately clung on to as well. It's like, that's literally the, the thesis statement of her life. But if she wouldn't have paid attention to the little like inklings in her body or in herself that were making her uncomfortable in the ministry setting, that were making her realize something wasn't right in her classroom, she wouldn't have known that God, she would have, if she would have been blind to those little moments, she may still think God is more interested in your control and controlling you than your own liberation. So it's amazing how these things that disrupt us in the moment 
ultimately lead to this such bigger and more uh, deep understanding of God and, and how God's in our lives. Yeah, spot on. I mean, so, so long as we're willing, we're daring to take the invitation to move beyond the discomfort, right? Like some something was triggered in her and she used the word migration. Like I am, I am drawn to that language. I'm, I am drawn to the word odyssey as well, because it is a lifelong, it's, it's a, it's a lifelong pilgrimage that is going to require that we understand moments that when we're triggered are actually oftentimes invitations into the necessary transformation that's ahead of us, whether it's the transformation of our hearts, minds, bodies, souls, or it's our transformation of our understanding of God, which, which for me, as I was listening to her, I'm like, well, how many of us, how many of us have been given a construction of God who is a, a dominant, conquering, controlling and how hard is it for us to embody the practices of everyday peacemaking if we haven't first done the theological work? You know, so I think her story really raised to the surface, like the theodicy, the theological formation is now informing how she's showing up in a more liberated way uh, as an everyday peacemaker in the classroom. I think it was interesting to you to note that, uh, you know, her husband's name is Kelly. And there was a moment when she had... Like the, the veil of, of oppression had been pulled back and she's experiencing it so tangibly in how this church community, this institution of the church was oppressing women, specifically her. And he gets fired for not controlling his wife was the quote she oh, used. Oh man, what a quote. And in oh, that gosh. moment, you know, we talk about contending as a, as a third practice as everyday peacemakers. Like it, it means leveraging what is ours Leveraging our privilege, our influence, our platform on behalf of those on the underside of it. And he, in that moment, didn't push back on his wife and control her, but sat with her in solidarity. And it was a beautiful picture, even of her that, like, what did that do to catalyze her own journey? Because now she's, she's sitting down with those in her classroom who have been oppressed and occupied for so long and contending for them uh, in, in ways that, have completely reshaped her understanding and vocation as not only a follower of Jesus, but as a teacher. Right. And I think so often people are afraid to move into these contending or these moments of solidarity or allyship because they fear doing it the wrong way. But I think we could all probably look back in our own story and see a moment of allyship in our own lives and it's birthed out of that relationship, you know, out of um, that that deep care. So I think it's also helpful to almost reframe, I don't know, what solidarity looks like. Like sometimes it looks like between husband and wife and sometimes it looks like between, you know, races. But we have all these different beautiful forms of allyship to learn from. Yeah, that's right. And, and I think the, the other piece that holds us back from contending other than just fear uh, is uh, is the the understanding that if I truly contend, it's going to be costly, right? So, for for Kelly to contend uh, contend for Sam cost him his job, you know, and uh, like like there was no more space for him in a system that was oppressing women, uh, and he knew that, and yet he, in my opinion, I think our shared opinion, he contended really well in a really costly. Uh, really costly way. What did you guys feel uh, as she began to talk about, it's like she began to see her classroom differently over time. What were you guys picking up in, in just the way that she was seeing, immersing and contending with regard to education? 
Well, I thought it was, I mean, this is kind of jumping back to the very beginning of her story, but she, she comes out of the gate saying like ministry was the dream and education was how she paid the bills. And so to see how she allowed the dream to morph into a nightmare, like she allowed, she was able to acknowledge that the dream was a nightmare and that, that she was actually being moved and called into a different area. I think that that is again, like her being able to attune to the spirit in that, because so often when we just latch on to the dream and we will not let go of the dream, even if the dream is actually a nightmare, um, I thought that showed another element of bravery in her ability to see and acknowledge what she was actually seeing. Yeah, I love too in her classroom where she she talked about the journey, which is I think a natural instinct for so many of us, especially those of us in in, in dominant culture, privileged contexts. We wake up to something she sees. Now she is immersing into a, a, a broken systemic reality. She used the word systemic for the first time. She woke up to not just the personal brokenness, but the systems that we've inherited. Mm-hmm. And her first response was to become an advocate, to be to become an activist. And that's a that's a sacred, holy instinct. And also it's fueled by so many of the ways that we have been taught to be heroes in every story. And so her journey of moving from I'm just gonna become an activist in the classroom to I'm gonna become someone who actually does the work myself and create an educational system that is anti-racist and allow it from that grassroots level up rather than top down, I think was, was profound. Absolutely. And, and this idea, just generally speaking of education as ministry, you know, I, I think it, it plays into some of like our argument, uh, from a global immersion point of view is everyday peacemakers are not professional humanitarians. We are everyday people who live, love, and lead restoratively wherever we are. And so, you know, to your point, Hales, she was, almost bifurcating ministry and education. And now she understands that education is her ministry. It's, it's hers to do within this, the, the restorative revolution that we're a part of. And her, but, but her seeing that is now causing her to interrogate not only what she does, but how she was trained to do what she does. You know, so I can only imagine in the, you know, if we were to talk to Sam five years from now, the stories that she'll be able to tell of who and how she is as an everyday peacemaking teacher, because she's drawn proximate to her students and she's allowing them to teach her how to teach them. That's it. Something else that made, from from my perspective, her story so accessible was that the acknowledged dissonance she even feels today about what does it mean to go on this journey and show up well. You know, she talked about needing to leave a faith community that was that was inadequate in their response to racism, whether it was, she didn't say whether they were silence or what they said was just off-putting. But she's living in that tension. And she said she is still struggling to decide what is hers to do. Is it to remain in that space to champion their liberation or is it to divest from it such that something else grows? And I think that's what many of us are wrestling with right now is what does it mean to show up in healthy ways where are the spaces we continue to give our energy? Where are the spaces we need to walk away from and give others our best energy? So Sam, thank you for reminding us that this way of life uh, is not just a set of tools and habits, but it's actually rooted in our faith. That we have to become people who are willing to take a journey to understand God as a liberator and the great peacemaker rather than a bully. So friends, God's restoration is happening. I want to encourage you to go participate in it and know that you're not alone. For more information on the work of Global Immersion, 
visit globalimmerse.org. Music in this episode was by King's Kaleidoscope and The Eagle and Child. This podcast is produced by Global Immersion and Adventure Vision Productions. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate us, and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your excellent podcasts.